2. Philippians 2. We're going to look this morning at verse 12 all the way to verse 18. Next week we'll finish up chapter 2. There's some notes if you'd like to follow along. There's an outline you can follow. It should be in your bulletin. My guess is most of you at some point in your life have had the opportunity or the burden of listening to a motivational speaker. Maybe that was at work or at school or I don't know, but you've heard motivational speakers sort of give their talk. And I don't mean this in a negative way, but you know, I think, that most motivational speakers sort of follow the same template or the same approach, right? Uh, Many times they will tell you about their life, their story, their struggles, things that they've overcome. And in telling you their story, they're trying to motivate you to make some sort of positive change in your life. Now, if all we needed was a good pep talk, good motivational speech, I think the world would look a lot different than it does today. If all it took was listening to one motivational speaker and then you sort of got your life in order and everything the way it was supposed to to be, if it was that simple and that easy, I think our experience in life would be a lot different. And you know as well as I do that listening to a motivational speaker, it might get you excited just for a moment. It might sort of inspire you or sort of give you some sort of warm, fuzzy feeling but it rarely translates into lasting change in your life or in my life. This is on your outline. It's one thing to recognize that we need to change. It's another thing to actually change. Many of us would sit here and say, well, I need to change the way I eat, or I need to change the way I exercise, or I need to do this or do that. And the reality is you're going to leave here and you're going to go eat a big plate of enchiladas and then you're going to take a nap all afternoon. So, it's one thing to know you need to change. It's another thing to actually do it. And this is connected with what we've been talking about in Philippians 2, okay? Paul has been talking about Jesus as this ultimate example of humility that he wants the Philippians to follow, and by implication, that he wants us to follow, okay? He set for Jesus as the ultimate example of humility, and you can see that in verse 1 to 11 in chapter 2. He talks about Jesus being in the form of God, but not clinging to that position, not grasping for it, but humbling himself by taking the form of a servant, being found in human form. Not only humbling himself by becoming a servant, but humbling himself, Paul says, to the point of death, even death on a cross. Only for God to take his son Jesus, and to super exalt him or to highly exalt him to the highest place and to give him the name that is above every name. And what Paul's saying is, this is the example that I want you to follow. I want you to have this mind among yourselves, he says, which is yours in Christ Jesus, that he humbled himself and he served us. And he's saying to the Philippians, I want you to do that in your church. I want you to be humble. I don't want you to insist on your rights all the time. I don't want you to, to insist on your way all the time, but I want you to be humble like Christ was humble, and I want you to serve other people. And Paul knows if the church in Philippi or the church at Emmanuel will do that, the result will be unity so that they have the same mind and they're of one accord and they're all on the same page. 
He knows that's how church will work best. The bad news is, on my best day, I'm not within a million miles of the humility that Jesus showed. And neither are you. So the bad news is, we look at this and Paul says, I want you to be like Jesus, and we find ourselves sort of unable to do exactly what Jesus did. We're not like him. And that's where the good news comes in. And this is the good news we're going to talk about this morning. God graciously works in his people so that they can work out their salvation. That's the big idea of the the verses we're looking at this morning, verse 12 to verse 18. God, in his grace, works in his people, and the result of God working in his people is that we now have the ability to work out our salvation. In other words, he doesn't just say, Emmanuel Baptist Church, be like Jesus, and you're on your own to figure that out. But he says, Emmanuel Baptist Church, church in Philippi, be like Jesus, humbly serve other people. And then after he makes that command of us, he works in us and continues to work in us in such a way that we have the power by his grace to work out our salvation. One word of clarification before we read in Philippians 2. Paul did not call the Philippians to work toward or to work for their salvation. In the words that we're about to read, you just need to have this clear in your brain. He's not saying you need to work toward your salvation, as if you're going to do something, Philippians, that will help you get a little bit closer to being saved. It's not what he's saying. He's not telling them to earn it. And he's also not saying you have to work for it. He's not saying God has given it to you and now you need to pay him back for it. That is not his point. His point is that God is working in his people in his grace, in his power, in his mercy, and the result of God working in us, his people, is that we have the ability to work out the salvation that he has worked into our lives. So with all that said, let's read our passage, Philippians 2, starting in verse 12. The word of God says this, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, But much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or questioning that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I'm glad And I rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. The word of God. Let's pray. Father, we have sung this morning about who you are in your grace and in your power, in your love for your people. Father, we see in this passage 
a reminder that you graciously work in your people so that we can work out what you have worked into our lives in that salvation, that we do it with fear and trembling. Father, in this morning, we just pray for eyes to see the truth as we look at these verses, to think about and to understand how we go about working out our salvation that you have worked into us. Father, give us wisdom. Give us hearts to receive your word and to submit to the authority of your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Really simple this morning. I only have one question that we're going to try to answer. We're going to try to answer it from two different perspectives. The question is, how do we work out our salvation? That's the, the central command in our passage. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. How do we actually do that? And we're going to answer it first broadly, or we'll say generally, which is just some basic thoughts. And then we're going to get more specific as we look at the second half of this passage. So generally speaking, how do we work out our salvation? Three things you need to see. First of all, we work out our salvation through a saving knowledge of Jesus. What I mean is a saving knowledge of Jesus is a prerequisite for any person, man, woman, boy, girl, old, young, whatever, for anyone working out their salvation. First, you have to have a saving knowledge of Jesus. Look at our passage Philippians 2.12 at the very first word. It's the word, therefore. Anytime, especially in Paul's letters, anytime when you see the word, therefore, you ought to stop and you ought to ask yourself the very simple question. What is it? What is it, therefore? What does he want me to go back and understand before I understand what he's saying here in verse 12? And if you go backward from verse 12, you see the passage that we just spent two weeks talking about. He set forth what Christ has done for us. He was in the form of God. He humbled himself. He took the form of a servant. He became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He's been raised from the dead and exalted to the highest position at heaven so that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's what comes before our passage. And he's saying, in light of everything you know about Jesus... Everything that I just told you about who Jesus is and what he did for you, now you work out your salvation with fear and trembling. There's people in this room, I promise you, who have spent their life trying to work out salvation that they've never received. You've gone to church, you've prayed prayers, you've done ritual. You've been part of ceremonies, religious ceremonies. You've tried really hard to be a good person. You've tried really hard with willpower to change. You have done your best to work something out that has never been worked in you to begin with. And the first thing that Paul would say is, he would just underline this word, therefore, and he'd say, before you worry about working out your salvation, why don't you make sure that you have it? Why don't you make sure that you know the truth about who Jesus Christ is? That he was God who became man without ceasing to be God so that he could die on the cross taking your place and taking your punishment so that you could be forgiven. And before you try to sort of muster up some sort of self-help change, positive, motivational, whatever in your life, why don't you just hit the pause button or, or call a timeout and make sure that you know the truth about Jesus. And not just that you have a knowledge about who Jesus is, but that you have a saving 
knowledge about who Jesus is. You understand there are people on the last day who will stand before Jesus and they will call Jesus by his name. And he'll say what? Depart from me, you're workers of lawlessness. I never knew you. You spent your life trying to work out something that was never worked in you to begin with. Make sure that you've got this saving knowledge of Jesus before you try to work anything out. Number two, we work out our salvation through the saving power of God, meaning it's not just intellectual knowledge that we need, but it's God's power in us. If we're going to obey this command, God's going to have to help us and empower us to obey this command. Look what we read in verse 12 and 13. It says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It is God who works in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. You see the same kind of idea all throughout the Old Testament all throughout the New Testament. Let me give you a few examples. Look at Psalm 127, verse 1. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Who builds the house? Uh, The laborers are building it, but their work is futile, pointless, worthless, powerless, ineffective, unless God builds it. It was God's power working through them. Look at this New Testament verse, Colossians 1. Paul says, for this I toil, and he says, I'm struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. So who's doing the working? Whose energy is it? Paul says, well, I'm toiling and I'm struggling, but he understands that's God's power working through me. It's not something I've conjured up on my own. It's not something I've sort of pulled my spiritual bootstraps up and mastered something the the rest of you don't understand. That's God working in me. Look at one more example. 1 Corinthians 15.10. By the grace of God, I am what I am. You know, we always, always hear people quote that verse and it's like an excuse for sin in their life. I am what I am. Look at what Paul's saying. His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Paul says, I worked harder than anybody else. But it wasn't I, it was the grace of God that's within me. Paul says the exact same thing here to the Philippians. It is your obligation and your responsibility to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Just remember, as you do that, it's not really you doing it. It's God doing it in you and through you. Don't turn around after you pray some prayer to receive Jesus and then pat yourself on the back for how holy you have made yourself, for how much progress you have made in your life. But understand that as you work out your salvation, that is the power of God at work within you. One last idea. Generally, how do we work out our salvation? We do it together in a local church. Together in a local church. You can miss this really easily when you read the book of Philippians in English. Because most English translations don't make a distinction or a differentiation between a singular you and a plural you. A singular your or a plural your. And I'm just going to tell you, as you read through Philippians 2, it's all plural yous. In other words, it's y'alls. 
you guys, you guys, you people, you, you decide which little phrase you like, but he's talking to the church as a whole. I don't know how many times I've quoted that verse to somebody or read it or thought about it, and I've thought, work out your own salvation. That's just me and Jesus, me and Jesus working this thing out. That is not what Paul is saying. He says, y'all, together, you got to do it together. You can't do it alone. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Seriously, what good is humility if you don't have somebody else to be blessed with your humility? How can you have unity if it's just you and Jesus and there's nobody else in your life? That's what Paul's been talking about, humility and unity and how important these things are. And he turns around and he says, together you're going to have to work these things out with fear and trembling. I want to say this carefully, but I want to say it forcefully. Anyone who tells you, you don't have to go to church to be a Christian has never read the New Testament. If they have, they didn't get it. They need to read it again. Now, I already told you, going to church doesn't mean you have salvation worked into your life. So we're all on the same page there. But anyone who turns around and sort of makes church as some kind of optional add-on to you and Jesus has never read the New Testament. And what Paul is saying here is, if you're going to work out your own salvation, you got to do it together. You can't do it alone. There's got to be other people involved. Wednesday nights, we have Bible study in this room. We sing hymns. And uh, one of the hymns at previous churches that I've pastored that sort of always got picked at funerals and for invitation songs at the end of the service and just came up all the time is the old hymn, In the Garden. Do you guys remember that hymn, In the Garden? Some of you can pull the melody up and the tune and the words. It was written by a pharmacist in 1912, C. Austin Miles. He wrote the words down and really wasn't popular for a little while until Billy Sunday, an evangelist, started using the song at the end of his evangelistic rallies as sort of this invitation song, song of response, whatever. Do you remember the, the chorus line of In the Garden? It goes like this. He walks with me and he talks with me and he tells me I am his own and the joy we share as we tarry there, none other has ever known. You realize how individualistically American that is? Think about what you're actually singing when you sing that song. What you're saying is, I have this time with Jesus, and it's just me and him, and it's better than anything you have ever had with Jesus. My time with him is better than anything anyone else has ever known. Better than your time with him. How ironic for a bunch of Christians to sing that together. Everyone saying, my time with Jesus is the greatest thing that anybody has ever known. And I know the words are nostalgic and the tune is nostalgic and if you want to sing it at your funeral, we'll sing it at your funeral. I won't be mad, it's no big deal. I just want you to understand the sentiment behind that chorus line is me, I, me, I, me, I, and Jesus. And the sentiment behind Philippians 2 is us and Jesus. 
You cannot work out your salvation with fear and trembling by yourself. You have to do it in the context of your local church family. Now, let's get specific. Those are just some general thoughts. Specifically, when you look at this passage, how do we work out our salvation? I got four thoughts, and I'm going to give you one disclaimer, okay? Everybody listening? Four thoughts. We're going to talk about the first two longer than we're going to talk about the last two, okay? So when we get to number three, and you're looking at your watch, and you're like, oh my goodness, we got two more points to go. Just, it's okay. I know how much time we have. I'm aware. The last two are going to be quick. So hang with me for the first two. Number one, we work out our salvation through words, words that reflect a changed heart. That's part of working out our, your, plural, salvation. Look at verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or questioning. He's talking to a church. There should be no grumbling or no questioning. That means when Corey Spear decides to buy a helicopter with church money (laughs) and we install a helipad on the roof of the sanctuary, a little escalator coming down the side, there's no grumbling about that. You understand? (laughs) We're not going to be fielding any questions. You know that's not what it means. Not at all what it means. But it is a pretty bold statement to say to a church, right? Do all things without grumbling or without questioning. I think if you look at the actual words that Paul uses here, you have a perfect idea of what he's really trying to say. It's not about helicopters and how we spend money or how we do things and whether or not you can question that. Think about these two words, grumbling or questioning. I'm going to give you a little vocabulary lesson. The word grumbling is the Greek word gongusmas. It's an onomatopoeia, which means it sounds like what it means, right? So the next time this week you get frustrated and you're tempted to grumble and mutter under your breath, you just say, gongusmus, gongusmus, gongusmus. It's grumbling, right? That's what it means, grumbling. It's the exact word that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 10.10 when he talks about the Israelites who God rescued from Egypt. He rescued them in the most spectacular way. He delivered them from slavery. And as soon as he got them out of Egypt, what did they do? Gongusmus, gongusmus, gongusmus. Same word. They grumbled and they complained. The second word Paul uses here is questioning. It's the Greek word dialogismos, dialogismos, depending on the pronunciation. And the idea is really simple. It's where we get the English word dialogue and it's sort of a back and forth, except in Greek, it usually has a negative connotation. So it's not just like a friendly dialogue, but it's like an arguing Right? It's a challenging. Paul's saying, don't be like Israel. When God rescued them by his grace, with great displays of power, and he brought them out into the wilderness, and their immediate response was to grumble and to question. Egypt was better. We had food in Egypt. Did he bring us out here just to kill us in the wilderness? If you're not familiar with all of these grumblings and questionings, go back and read the second half of Exodus and read the book of Numbers. That's where the train comes completely off the track in the book of Numbers. And listen to what the people say. 
Read about their grumbling. Read about their questioning. And what Paul says is, don't be like that. If God has worked salvation into your life, you should not be so negative and hateful, grumbling and questioning and challenging and being hateful about everything. Stop it. Paul understands what Jesus said when Jesus said, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. If it comes out of your mouth, don't give me that nonsense about I didn't mean it. Of course you meant it. It came straight from your heart. If it comes out of your mouth, it started inside your heart. Jesus said that. And Paul understood it. And what Paul is saying to the church in Philippi and to us is, when God works salvation into your life, when he begins to change you from the inside out, changing your heart, the overflow ought to look different. It ought to sound different. And the result is, do all things without grumbling or questioning. I'll be honest with you, this is hard. It's not easy. It is not easy. You can't do it on your own any more than I can. I just jotted down a few things that are challenging. In your life, when you try to pursue holiness and kill sin, when you try to give generously and sacrificially, when you try to practice hospitality like the New Testament commands to the people in your church family, you're going to practice hospitality to them. When you try to love your family, and your neighbor, and your enemy, you're going to be tempted to grumble and to question. And all of this negativity is going to be so easy to come out. And you've got to come back and you've got to say, but God has changed my heart. He's forgiven me. He saved me. He's worked salvation into my life. I can't be the kind of person who has this negative stream of hatefulness always coming out of their mouth. I think most of you have probably heard of John Newton. He lived a long time ago. He was involved in abolishing the slave trade in the United Kingdom in Great Britain. He wrote hymns. The most famous hymn that he wrote was Amazing Grace. And he tells a great little story to help us understand how foolish it is for Christians to be people who grumble. How foolish it is. Listen to what he says. Suppose a man was going to New York to take possession of a large estate. And his carriage, okay, this is old school. He didn't have a, a Ford or a Chevy. He had a carriage. His carriage should break down a mile before he got to the city, which obliged him to walk the rest of the way. What a fool we should think him if we saw him wringing his hands and blubbering out all the remaining mile. My carriage is broken. My carriage is broken. What am I going to do? He says, you're, you're a mile away from a great inheritance. What are you complaining about? Finish the walk. Quit blubbering around like a fool and get on with it. And I think that's what Paul is saying to the Philippians. Saying, look, you're one mile from an inheritance. You're one mile from an estate that will never fade or perish. It is unbecoming of you when you are on your way to that kind of inheritance to be grumbling and questioning about everything. You look like a fool, to use Newton's words. So our words 
reflect that our hearts have been changed. It's part of working out our salvation. Secondly, we work out our salvation by living differently than the world. That's just my attempt to summarize verse 15. And I thought about putting it a lot of different ways. I don't know that I've landed on the best idea, but look what he says in verse 15. Do all things without grumbling or questioning. Verse 15, that you may be blameless and innocent. You are children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom, as you're in the midst of this crooked, twisted generation, you, because you're blameless and you're innocent and you're children of God, verse 15, you shine like lights in the world. You shine like lights in the midst of darkness. This is kind of an amazing thought when the New Testament starts to talk about us shining as lights. Look what Jesus said in the Gospels. John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. And then he flips that in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 14, and he says, you're the light of the world. He expects us to shine before the world. And he goes on in Matthew and he says, you should shine as the light. You don't cover up a light, but you let it shine. You let it impact the darkness so that people will see your good deeds and glorify your Father who is in heaven. And Paul says, look, your life should be so different that as you live in the midst of this twisted, crooked, perverse, depraved generation, your life is different. And people can see it like a light shining in the darkness. This is getting, in a sense, harder and, in a sense, easier as our culture gets darker and darker and darker. There's a sense in which it becomes harder because there's this pull and there's this temptation to just sort of slide towards the darkness. On the other hand, it's also getting easier to shine as light because the darkness is getting darker. And as our society, as our culture, as our country continues this slide, and it is sliding, you can't deny it, you're going to hear two plans, two proposals for what the church ought to do in response to all of this change and all of this increasing darkness in our culture. One plan you can summarize as get with the program, church. And the other plan or proposal you can hear is get out of here. So let's think about both of those. You're going to hear people, you already hear them, who say to the church, look, times are changing, and you're going to have to get with the program. This book, you know, 2,000-year-old book, it was good for a while, but come on, it's the 21st century. We know way more than we've ever known before, and you need to get with the times and get over some of these old, outdated ideas. You need to move up into the 21st century and be part of the conversation. If you don't, you're just going to get left behind. Get with the program." Change or die. People say that. You read it on the internet. You hear people say it on the news. You hear it from pulpits all across the United States. How foolish. How foolish to think that if we become more like the world, we'll be able to shine as lights in the darkness. If you look through history, church history, the church has been the strongest and spread the fastest and thrived the most when it was most unlike the surrounding culture. 
Not when it fit in with the surrounding culture, but when it was different than the surrounding culture. What about plan B, second option? You have other people that are going to say to you, you just need to get out. You need to withdraw. You need to not be a part of anything that's going on in the world. Don't watch what they watch. Don't listen to what they listen. Don't go where they go. Don't be with who they're with. Stay away from them. Form this kind of little holy huddle, this sort of like church club. You just, you need your own music and you need your own stuff and you need your own clothing lines and don't do anything with them. You just pull back and retreat. To which I would say, how foolish is that? How are you going to shine when you get all the light together away from the darkness? The light, Jesus says, has to be out in the darkness for it to make some kind of difference. You can't just pull it all in one room and expect to make a difference in the world. You have to shine. This retreat mentality, it's the same idea that the monks have been trying to do for centuries. Take, for example, a monk named Simon the Stylite. This guy was a Christian. He lived in the 400s, over 1,500 years ago. And this guy looks around his society and he says, this place is disgusting. Lives in the Roman Empire. This place is terrible. I'm out of here. So he moves to the desert. Lives all by himself in a cave out in the desert. He was frustrated because people kept coming to see him. They wanted to be around this holy guy. So everybody kept coming out to the desert. Everybody kept knocking on his cave. Everybody kept invading his space. And he said, well, I I left the city. I tried to get out of there. People are still coming. He said, I got to get away from these people. And this was his plan. He said, I'm going to build a pillar, a stylite, 50 feet high. I'm going to live on top of it. It's about two square meters on the top. Had a nice little bar up there that he could lean on take a nap on. You think I'm kidding. This guy lived on the top of a pillar in the middle of the desert for 37 years because he was trying to escape the corruption of the world, the ugliness of the world, the depravity of the world, to withdraw from the world. And I look at that story and I say, what a wasted life. Sitting on top of a pillar in the middle of the desert when you could have been part of a church family somewhere, in a community somewhere, in the middle of the darkness, shining, Paul says, like a light in the world. The folly of this approach, of this withdrawal from the world stuff, you know what the folly of it is, really. I mean, historically, it's foolish. Biblically, it's foolish. Rationally, there's one thing you can't escape when you move to the desert and you live on the top of a pillar. You. You. You, you can't get away from your own heart. You can get away from my heart. You can get away from the corruption of society. You can get away from the depravity we see celebrated all around us. But you're going to end up in the middle of the desert, up on your pillar, all by yourself. And you're going to realize, I brought that junk with me. And now I'm stuck on a two square meter platform, railed in, and I'm with myself, my depraved self, my wretched self, as John Newton would say. 
What Paul is saying is not withdraw and retreat and leave the world. And he's also not saying you need to be exactly like the world, change or die, update, get with the times. He's saying, look, you live in the midst of a dark, crooked, twisted generation. No doubt about it. It was that way in Paul's day. It's that way today. It will be that way until Jesus comes back. Your job is to shine like a light. Some translations say like a star in the sky. To shine and to live differently, that's part of working out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, two last ideas, three and four. We work, our, work out our salvation by holding to the truth of God's word. Verse 16 says, hold fast to the word of life. Hold fast to the word of life. If you're going to work out salvation, if we're going to do it together with fear and trembling, our foundation has got to be God's word. It can't be entertainment. It can't be shared socioeconomic status. It can't be we have nothing better to do at Sunday morning at 9 a.m. and 10.30. The center of it has to be the Word of God. That's got to be our foundation. And I'll be real honest with you. As a church family, we are going to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. It's going to take more than me talking on Sunday morning for 30, 35, 40 minutes for us to cling or to hold fast to the word of truth. You're going to have to read this book. You're going to have to think about this book. You're going to have to meditate on this book. I'm not telling you you've got to spend six hours a day in Bible study, but I'm telling you 40 minutes a week is not enough for us to be people to hold fast to the word of truth. So we work out our salvation by holding to the truth of God's word. Last idea is this. We work out our salvation by rejoicing in all circumstances. That's the title of our series. You know by now it means worshiping with joy. And Paul says at the tail end of this passage, you have got to be people who rejoice no matter what. Look what he says in verse 17. He says, even if I am about to be poured out as a drink offering. Drink offering is something that was added to a sacrifice. So the worshiper would come and they would offer this sacrifice the tabernacle or at the temple, and then added on top of it a drink. Usually wine would be poured out on top of it, just sort of as an extra add-on to the sacrifice. And what Paul is saying is this, the sacrifice has been made. Jesus humbled himself. He took the form of a servant. He became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's the sacrifice. And he's saying, all I want is for my life to just get poured out on top of that. Literally what he's saying is, even if I have to die For you, I'm going to rejoice. I'm going to worship with joy. And he's calling these people. You need to be people who worship with joy. Regardless of what happens to me, regardless of your circumstances, we must be people who rejoice. This is the faith of Habakkuk, who wrestled with God and God's plan. And at the end of this short book in the Old Testament, Habakkuk chapter 3, Habakkuk says this, says, I will rejoice in the Lord, and I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Even though the world around me is chaos, even though my situation and my circumstance is almost unbearable or completely unbearable, I'll rejoice, and I'll take joy in the God of my salvation. That's what Paul is calling the Philippians to, to be people who rejoice regardless of circumstances. And that's what the Word of God is calling us to as well. So this morning, I want you to bow. I'm going to pray for us 
as we think about this idea of working out our salvation. Father, we stop to acknowledge as your people who know Jesus and love Jesus that you have done a great work in our lives. Father, we know from Philippians 1 that you who started a good work in us will be faithful to bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. You will be faithful to continue to work in us, to will and to work for your good pleasure. Father, remind us this morning that we can only do that through knowing Jesus. And we can only do it with your power. And we can only do it together as your people. Father, be honored in our lives. Be glorified in our lives as you work in us and as we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Father, our response to you this morning is worship, and we pray that it's worship with joy. Father, as we sing, our desire is to honor you and to glorify you, to reflect on who you are and all that you have done for us and all that you promised to do for us. Father, receive our worship as we sing together. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.